Welcome to Nothing Confidential, the podcast. I'm Kristen Henke, your hostess with the mostest, guide from the side, and mistress of ceremonies. As a somatic sex coach, I believe that pleasure, connection, and authentic expression are a function of safety. My desire for this platform is to normalize topics that have been thought of as unsafe or shameful. Conversations around sex, money, trauma, spirituality, loss, these are the conversations that shape us. When we approach these exchanges with curiosity, compassion, nuance, and a dollop of humor, we create room for people to feel seen and heard in both their unique and collective experiences. In other words, this is a soft place to have hard conversations. I'm so honored to have you here. Shall we commence? Welcome, welcome, welcome back, friends, beloveds, beautiful human beings. And if this is your first time listening to Nothing Confidential, the podcast, welcome. And thank you so much for being here. I truly, deeply value your time. And I am so honored to be back in community with all of you for a third season that feels so crazy and also so exciting. And for those of you who have been along for the ride for the entire journey, things uh, have changed from season to season. My first season I released in 2020, right before giving birth to a human baby. And I was somehow overcome with creative energy and I cranked out an episode every week even though I had a baby and then season two we're right in the throes of things I bring on a phenomenal human as my co-host and that felt expansive and we both went through so many soul shifting processes and (laughs) events in our personal lives uh, last year. And so in order to make space, we went to kind of a bi-weekly episode and then we kind of ghosted somewhere around September, October, October and didn't uh, release any new content until now. And I, I am back to relaunch season three. And again, I am changing up everything because this show is an extension of myself and it means so much to me and I put so much of my heart in it and I have such a big vision for it. And so I am going to continue changing and reformatting and reimagining in a way that feels exciting and expansive and true to who I am, where I am at any given moment. And so again, I thank you for being here And I hope you're ready to do this with me. So season three, what can you expect? Season three is going to be a monthly release format. I am at a time in my life where I am over energy that feels frantic in any way, shape, or form. And the demanding schedule, having to churn out content every week, every other week, felt not only stressful uh, for me as a 
podcast production team of one mother to a very active toddler and also um, a fully employed (laughs) sex coach with a thriving practice and a lot of really amazing clients. It was just so demanding to do that. And it wasn't feeling good to me that on a schedule so tight there was never much time to actually engage in the conversations surrounding whatever the episode was about. And I never take it lightly, um, just what an honor and a gift it is when people, when my guests share their time and their stories and their lived experiences and their expertise with me. And it started to feel really shitty when you know, if James was sick or something one week and I missed like my day to promote the show, it would, I'd turn around and it was time to promote the next conversation. And I didn't get to give the previous guest, you know, the, the time or the spotlight that they and their work deserve. So I am remedying that by opening up the entire month for conversation. And it also, invites me into deeper intentionality around the kind of conversations I want to be having. And I get to to bring you guys along into that and I feel so like activated in the best way about that. I I'm truly I'm really giddy about all of this. So it's going to look like for this for this release this is a two-part conversation. You can binge them all at once or you can spread them out since you won't have another two-part episode until the following month. And I want to be in communion, in conversation with you about these topics that are close to my heart. And they may seem like a departure from the sex and intimacy and body and relationship stuff that I've talked about in the past, but really they are a deepening of that. We're going to be talking about death and loss and miscarriage and wealth and sex work and so many beautiful, necessary conversations that are still not being had because of the stigma and the lack of safety around them. So that's what you can expect. Just wanted to kind of start things off with that. Our very first conversation, Dearly Departed, is about death. It is about how we think and feel and speak about it, how we interact with it. I hope that these conversations offer a dignified, compassionate, intentional lens through which we can view the process of dying and really honoring a person at the end of their life. And I'm so profoundly, deeply touched by the two women who offered me their hearts and their stories, their sacred experiences. Our first guest here in part one, Michelle, transitioned both of her parents who were never married um, to separate people, separate lives at different times. And uh, in part two, Kiana was able to support her grandmother 
and literally sang her to the other side. And both stories are heartbreaking and joyful and tender and real and raw. And I couldn't be more touched that they chose to share them with me here um, with all of us. So I'm really excited. I wanted to briefly introduce you to Michelle Diercole. Michelle's professional career in the holistic healing arts has been constant since 1982, but the healing of her body trauma, cancer, car accidents, autoimmune, and emergency surgery is where she really began putting the teachings into practice. She utilizes herbal medicine, extensive massage therapy modalities, energy medicine, yoga, and deep spiritual practices. These are all pieces of the healing journey that she has incorporated um, not only in the work that she does in the world with women, but in this conversation, there is also a lot of places where her her background, her collection of skills and um, her superpowers, essentially, like her toolkit, how she uses that to support both of her parents. And I really, um, I really, really connected just with the pieces of her story where this process of being with her parents individually at the end of their life was a conduit to deeper healing in their relationship, rebuilding of relationship. And something I was really moved by was the way in which when I would, when I would ask her certain, I mean, there was a lot of different things I asked her. It comes up multiple times. So I do, I want you to listen for it. It comes up multiple times that, I mean, not only do I Um, apparently hate tuna casserole, but also that deep listening is the key. It is such an essential part of being able to be in this role as a, a death doula of sorts, someone who is birthing a person to the other side, um, and whatever may be waiting there. And she is so incredibly warm and open and there's so much wisdom in her approach and how intuitively she cared for both of her parents based on who they were. We do talk about the differences but then also the similarities in, you know, having these two separate experiences and deep listening is something that she came back to over and over and I feel like that is one of the things that we all, myself very much included, struggle with the most around death and grief and loss. It's this this space, the the quiet, the stillness, the 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 sense of helplessness, the not being able to do any do anything. And I think she really speaks to that really beautifully in in how the most powerful way that we can show up for people sometimes is just to, to really, really listen to them. So I don't want to pick this conversation apart too much. It is flawless. It is, it is 
breathtaking in its entirety. So I am going to let you get to my conversation with Michelle, but Michelle just hands on my heart. Thank you. Thank you again for this beautiful contribution. And I'm so honored. why I always click record before I ask questions, because even the answers to mundane questions tend to be interesting. (laughs) For example, I just asked Michelle, our esteemed guest, what her last name was and pronunciation and found out that it was son of Hercules in Italian. (laughs) Michelle Diercole, Diercole, thank you very much for joining me on Nothing Confidential. It is a delight to have you here. It's a treat. Thank you. Mm. So, because this is a, an audio platform, introduce yourself uh, to our community. Let them know just just whatever feels relevant. We're gonna have a very juicy conversation, and they already know what that's gonna be. But just give us a little background on you and kind of what led you to the main story we're gonna tell today. Sure. Well, I've been working in energy medicine since the '80s. Um, I started massage therapy training, which I thought was just gonna be something to do until I figured out what I was going to do for the rest of my life, which turned out to be the rest of my life. And Mm. it's, it's been the healing modality. One of the many um, things that I've learned about healing for myself and my family. Mm. I've, I've had cancer. I've had uh, autoimmune still dealing with autoimmune disorder, um, car accidents. My body's been my greatest classroom to practice all of these things on so, um, since the eighties. So wow. it's it, changing, um, as I've grown, it went more into a spiritual realm of learning why the body doesn't heal. I studied with, um, Carolyn Mace and, mm. and more about the archetypes and energy yeah, and what holds people back from actually healing because I've worked with people every week and I couldn't figure out why they kept presenting similar things. We'd fix it this week and it'd be back next week kind of thing. Um, Then I studied about energy and buildings and places and and the history of antiques and how those things also have stories and hold that energy. And, and, And then as people live in those homes, they have experiences that affect their health and their life and their families. So then I started clearing buildings and, 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 and it's, it's just been profound. I want to, I want to sideline for a minute. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, except for the fact that, so you were talking about how you start studying energies of like objects and things. Mm -hmm. So I just want validation. I'm not crazy that after I went through the most significant breakup in my life, I continually had like reoccurring dreams and like connections to this person, no matter what I did, literally until I got rid of every last item that they gave me. Hopefully the bed. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, the bed is gone too. That is gone. (laughs) Yes. All the gifts, all the, because for such a long time, what was so interesting is I did the immediate clearing, like the first, the first time, like went through all the stuff you would think of. 
but then I had this really beautiful like overcoat that he had bought me that I kept wearing for like multiple years after the fact. And I was in another relationship and all this stuff. And he kept coming to me in my dreams. So I was like, what the actual frick? And I ended up doing some other pretty alternative things to help with the dream connection and some of the, the emotional erotic ties and that sort of thing. But when I finally, when it finally hit me that that coat was still in my closet, like I, it's almost like I forgot who gave it to me. Like I just, I loved it so much that I didn't think about it. And I was going through like a purging cleansing. And I looked at that coat and I suddenly just had this like vision of me in it and him and all the times we've been together. And I was like, oh my God, I have to get rid of this. And I threw it out, even though it made me really sad to do that. I would love, <laughs> so that tell me. There's like... <laughs> ways and it's way beyond smudging. Smudging's yeah. lovely. Don't get me wrong. But there's grid lines, there's electromagnetics. There are actual cords of history. Yeah. I do work with realtors and I go in and, mm. and I, and I tell them, do not tell me the name of the people. I don't want to know anything, but the address. And I have actual pictures of things that would blow your mind in these empty buildings mm. Mm. and, wow. and the stories that, that they hold. <sighs> so Okay. Believe me, it's not in your imagination. <laughs> it's not even close to something you've made up. Mm. Thank you. And Thank houses you can hold people mm -hmm. and things can hold people. Yeah. Um, it's, oh. it's profound. It okay. really, and it, the, the connection between a gift mm -hmm. that someone gives you, it, it could be an attached gift. We, we all know how it is to give somebody something that you yeah. want something in return. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's not really unconditional. Hmm. Hmm. All right. All right. That has my brain going in a lot of directions. We're going to hone it in for today, but we'll be back. We'll be back with that. We might talk we'll have, again. Yeah. We'll have Michelle for a part two at some point because <laughs> that completely intrigues me, but this isn't, it's not, I I'm wrong. What I just said about this being unrelated. It's not unrelated, obviously being in the field and in the work of, I mean, looking at inner energy and attachment and how we hold on to things and the way in which and the ritual in which around how we let go of things is actually very potent for today's conversation and significant in in this in the story in, in this context specifically which is why i brought it up okay okay so if you know where you're going with that exactly i will let you get back to it otherwise i was gonna it's gonna segue us <laughs> well well to your point it seems unrelated but when you have trouble letting go there's a fear. Mm -hmm. And what's the fear that's holding you attached to your things, mm -hmm. to your house, to your body? And if indeed it's really time to go, yeah, you have from to a relationship, to from a home, from a body, mm. what pe has people holding on? What has them suffering? What has them stuck? For such a long, long time. And other people say, okay, I get it. Time to go. Bye. Yeah. So I'm going to reset the room really quick in case anyone is like, there are those people who like skip right to the meet and they don't listen to the intro. So if you skipped the first like three to seven minutes of this, just going to let you know that today, so you can prepare your hearts, we are talking about death. We are talking about our 
relationship to it, the way that we think, feel, and speak about it. It's a conversation that I personally haven't witnessed a lot. And it's one that unless someone is actively dying, most of us are not engaged in at all. And yet it's one of the most, it's, it's a lot of people's greatest fear is the fear of death. And that was actually one of the few kind of scripted questions I had for you, um, which was, you know, why do you think so many people fear death? And I think it's interesting that you've already brought up this fear of letting go of releasing. I would love for you to dig into that as wherever you would like. Well, there's so many reasons for fears. There's as many reasons as there are people. Uh, They're afraid of what they're going to see on the other side. They're afraid of what they haven't completed. They could be afraid. They could be afraid that of what they believe is the end. Mm -hmm. And they have so much unfinished, Mm -hmm. uh, unresolved, unhealed, unforgiven. What I've seen as far as getting closer to the end, there's a surrender. And before the surrender, there's a great deal of remorse, you know, of things that have not been finished. Is that, yeah, regret. I was going to ask if that remorse is like based in regret. Yeah. 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 For things undone or for things done, combination of the two. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah. Well, and I, I asked you here today because you have a really unique take on the experience of dying and of transitioning, like consciously, intentionally helping someone transition at the end of their life and in, in the healing space. And, and it wasn't that long ago. I think we were talking about this beforehand. It hasn't been a very long time that there's been language for that, but in the recent years, probably the last like three years, the first time I heard of the official title of a death doula and you in acts of service have performed this role for several people, but two of whom were your own parents, your mother and your father, who, by the way, were never married. You were never married. So yeah. Give us the backstory on that so that we can go deeper there. Um, My mother raised me. So I was an only child of a single woman. And in the fifties, that was not done. So we kind of had a pact, you and me against the world forever. And, um, you know, we, we had big lives and, and, and moved forward and moved in separate states and, and lived far, far apart. And, um, at the end of her life, I said, I will be there. And she really was afraid that I wasn't going to come through. Mm. Why didn't she thought that? Because I'm very independent, very strong. I did not live in the same town with her. I, um, I actually had two dogs that were also making their transition. One right when she broke fell and broke her hip or her broke her hip broke and that's usually what happens the hip breaks and then she fall um and she was already terminal with cancer um she didn't want me to leave the hospital but my dog was dying and she said oh your neighbor can do that i said no <laughs> i've had my dog for 15 years i will be there for him and then i will be back so i came home to florida I do led his death 
and then went back and, and lived with her in the last few months of her life. Mm. So um, she was afraid because things weren't always you and me against the world. There was yeah. you and me against each other for several of those years. And strong women can tend to have some conflict. <laughs> you think Not always see eye to eye. Imagine that. I don't my know anything healing, about that, Michelle. <laughs> my healing, wonderful energy and all of my evolution. I still had shit to do. I still had healing to do. Isn't that, let's, yeah, let's just take a moment and a deep breath of uh, compassion for all of us who, I think, is it Ram Das who says, like, if you think you're woke, like, try spending a weekend with your family, basically. It's like, oh, you could be the most transcendent, like, just tapped in healer and your mom calls you with some shit and, like, watch that leave in three seconds. (laughs) It's a special gift special gift of activation. It is a blessing and a curse. It's a humbling experience, but Mm -hmm. we worked through it um, to the point where in the end, there was a lot of forgiveness, a lot of tears, a lot of joy. Um, She was in a lot of pain. And so I had hospice come. Um, My mom also became a yoga instructor. She, she learned from me about herbal medicine and then she surpassed me in herbal medicine knowledge. She uh, became an an instructor of yoga. So she was very much into meditation and yoga by the end of her life. She knew how to use the skills and tools of her practice, but she was still human and the human condition can be very painful. Mm. So um, they brought in morphine for pain management. Well, she was tiny, like she wasn't a hundred pounds and they were telling me, give her this dose, give her this dose. And I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around how that made any sense because I didn't want her to leave before it was her time. I just Mm -hmm. didn't want her to be in pain. So we negotiated Mm -hmm. her medicine. Yeah. And we continued to do green smoothies and things that meditation. And I had these angel cards where she would, if she didn't feel like talking, she would at least pull an angel card and, and then I would pull an angel card and I would read them and we would cry and we would laugh and we, had, um, she would tell me, you're really angry. Why are you so angry? Why won't you talk to me about your anger? And I said, well, I'm kind of angry that you're leaving, but I also understand it's your time. So I'll deal with my anger when you're gone. It's not about you. It's about me. I know you got to go. I don't want you to stay and be in pain. So we had deep heartfelt conversations like that. Um, the, the thing that I, I remember connecting with the most was that she would ask for specific things. Yeah. And in anyone's right mind, they would say, well, she can't eat that. She can't do that. She, that doesn't make any sense. But I did everything that she could possibly want. She wanted a massage. Well, I had a massage therapist come from my spa and work on her because I couldn't do it. Mm. As long as I've been practicing, I couldn't do it. She wanted somebody to give her a bath. 
as many children as I've had and as many baths. I knew I had not the capacity. So I would get her needs met while also nourishing and nurturing my own needs because I knew it was a long haul and I needed to be fully present. Yeah. And I want to, I, I do, I want to spend a little bit of time here. And I'm so grateful that you brought this up because I think one of the things that keeps people from going off, from going all in, from being open to the experience, from showing up for someone who is passing away, who is transitioning is the fear that they don't have anything to give because we think that it has to be all or nothing. We think that we have to be there like night and day and there's no relief for us and we don't get to shower and we don't get to care for ourselves or have boundaries or have downtime or have any of these things as a caretaker. And that's incredibly, that is such a societal outlook and that that is motherhood and it like caretaking in general it's just this no you you have to do it you have to do all of it you don't get to ask for help you don't get to have any reprieve and that keeps people from being where I think they want to be they just think that they absolutely can't because they have no energy they have no time and they can't imagine taking the brunt of someone else's care when they're already completely depleted And what you're saying that I think is so important that, and achieves two things. One, the fact that you as the daughter are not giving her her bath and are not, you know, giving her the massage, even though you're capable, like physically capable of doing those things, there is a level of dignity that that provide that that gives her, that that allows her where she gets to maintain kind of her matriarchy in this dynamic where you, she does not become the child that you are changing and washing and doing things for. And then again, just like you said, you protect your capacity. So you are so able to be there for her and to have those deep conversations and to be so emotionally and physically present because you're not completely burned out. There's also the component, all those things are very true. There's also the component of listening because I don't have the answers. I I don't have the answers for my clients, let alone my mother. I listen to her. She's the one that takes the lead and I follow, you know, I listen to her requests And then I figure out what are the resources we have available to get this accomplished? What can we do together? Who could I ask for help to help me to help her? So to to the people that are afraid that they don't know it all or have it all, they don't need to. Just be willing to be willing. Yeah. To just sit and listen because listening is where you get your greatest answers. We keep asking for help and praying, but the listening part kind of gets missed, missed in the translation. Yeah. So um, asking for hospice to come was a huge gift. They brought everything I could possibly need and more um, and told me what to expect. Um, and they were extremely loving and caring and supportive and, and provided everything. But then I had to listen to her as far as what she needed of what was being given. Mm-hmm. All because gifts are not 
like you just talked about earlier, are not for us. Yeah. And how did you, because I also think that people are afraid of being closely involved with the process of dying because they're afraid of their own emotions. They're afraid of their own grief, their own anger, their own resentment, their own, you know, whatever it is that is coming to the surface during these times where loss is imminent. How, how did you, aside from just saying like these parts, I mean, you obviously being in a healing space for such a long time, you have a certain level of self-awareness. So you kind of, you, you know how to take responsibility for yourself and what's going on. But other than communicating about that anger, like how did you go through a process that is impacting you and that is deeply rooted in grief, like without letting the grief overtake the process and your ability to be present while she was still here? Oh, believe me, it wasn't pretty. Like, don't let my demeanor now let you (laughs) think that it was all a bed of roses and that I always looked just quaffed and perfect. Quaffed is literally the word I was going to use for you. I was like, you're so quaffed. Look at your hair. Oh my God. (laughs) Fabulous. Yeah. That shit was not happening. I went into a store and I was just like, I don't even know what I was wearing. I had pajama bottoms and a sweatshirt and some kind of... I don't know. And I'm like in there trying to find her some underwear that would fit. And I just started crying in the underwear section. You know, I mean, I'm like, and then I just told random strangers at the counter, I'm really sorry. I'm crying. My mom's at home dying and I need to get some underwear. Like that was way TMI. Like they did not need to know that, but I needed to like, just blow a gasket just a little, you know, like what's that pressure cooker, just Mm. a little steam, you know? Yeah. I would walk out as it was in St. Louis and it was winter. She died two days after Christmas and, and it was cold and I would go out and I would take like five deep breaths and I hate the cold. I live in Florida. I I would go out and swear at the cold, you know, and then I'd go back in and be like, okay, I can handle it. You know, it just, I would be like, okay, I need, I just need five minutes of journaling. And I'd be, you know, journaling away about this is hard. This is hard. This is hard. Okay. I can do this. Mm. So it's not easy, but it is graceful. It Mm. is, I, I wouldn't miss it for the world. And everyone does not have the capacity. Let me just tell you right up front. It is a calling. And I've talked to many other people that have been in situations like myself who have been called to a death. And I'm going to tell you, everybody isn't called. Because of your life circumstances, you might have small children, a husband, a business, you can't leave. My life opened up like a book and said, here you go. This is your chapter. You're going everything lined up for me to be there. Mm. And the same was true for my dad, which we'll get to next. But it was, it was unmissable. Mm -hmm. It was unmissable that it was my time and my calling. And I know you said kind of at the beginning that 
in, in the the beginning of the process of you coming in and being like, I'm here, like I told you I'd be here and I'm here and we're doing this process together, like ride, ride and die, we're going together. She had some regrets and some remorse and some things roiling around. Do you feel like a she was in a peaceful place by the end of the stretch, by the end of the process and the end of the journey? And B, did you have things that needed to get resolved? And do you feel like those were resolved by the time your time like closed? Ooh, loaded question. Very loaded. Are you comfortable? <laughs> do you feel okay with it? Oh, Take us, a answer as much of that as you would like and leave the rest. <laughs> This is not no a gotcha secret, show. full transparency. I really confidential. <laughs> I got no secrets. Um, yes. So definitely regrets were healed early on. We had to do some repairs, both um, energetically, legally, mm. financially. There were all kinds of things that needed to be repaired on my mother's side. On my side, I, I pretty much put up an emotional wall. I was there to do business. I was there to take care of my responsibility. Um, when she died, I said, let me back up Christmas dinner her kitchen was the size of a postage stamp. It was so tiny. I I have a bathroom that's bigger and I have a really small house and I made every kind of food. I cooked a goose. I cooked like four kinds of meat. I, I, I don't even know. I had, had so much food because she wanted it all. She want, I'm like, well, what do you want? She said, I want it all. So I made it all. And she had like a, half of a taste of everything. And it made me so happy. And two days later, my daughter had come in from Chicago and her cousin. And I said, mom, we ordered a pizza. I'm going to go have a piece of pizza with the girls and I'll be right back. And she knew that I was supported. She knew I wasn't alone. And she stepped out when I went to have a pizza. pizza. She wasn't alone, but that morning I could tell she was looking in the corner and she was looking at someone, you know, how someone stares off and they're not looking at anything. And you know, when somebody's looking at something, she was looking at something. Somebody came to get her. And I said, is somebody here? She wouldn't say it, but she looked like a little girl caught with her hand in the cookie jar. And she went, and I said, is it grandma? You know, my, my grandmother? Is it your dad? Ex-lover? <laughs> was it? It was her next older brother, Bobby. Oh. I would have never in a million because he was killed very early, like um, 1961, maybe. How old was she when he was killed? 21. So it must have impacted her. He meant he meant something to her, obviously. They were very close. Yeah. And he was the one. Mm. Yeah. And it was his granddaughter that was with my daughter having pizza. 
Did you feel some type of way about her leaving while you were getting pizza after all that? <laughs> I mean, I know it's not about you, but also like you're a human being. Like, did you feel some kind of way about that? <laughs> I thought it was, she was protecting me. She was being, she was trying to be kind. Oh yeah. yeah. That was full on mom protection. Mm, yeah. Now I'm going to tell you something that'll raise the hair on the back of your knees. Ooh, t- oh, well, I shaved yesterday, so we'll leave it to my neck. But <laughs> so I had a favorite movie growing up and it's really a sad movie, but it's very random out there. It's called The Imitation of Life. For you movie buffs that are listening, it, it's a, it'll get you where you live. But it's not, it's a black and white. I mean, it's, it's old. Lana Turner, old. Mm. The next day I was sitting in her bed, meditating. And I just thought, I can't think about this anymore. Let me turn on the TV. Imitation of Life was on the television. (laughs) And it was about a mother and a daughter and the housekeeper and her daughter. So it was a mother-daughter movie and I cried. I mean, yeah. I, I have a hard time expressing emotion. And so movies make me cry. That release. It's like conscious release, permission to let and it all she out. Knew. That was another gift from my mother. I know it as, as much as I know we're talking today. I knew that was from her. Mm. So when you're that close to death, you know how close they really are and they're never really gone. It's yeah. a veil and it's very thin sometimes. Mm. And you... sometimes it's thicker, but some, for some of us, it's very thin. Have you experienced her, felt her since she's been gone? Yeah. Yeah. She keeps popping in the check on you. Every once in a while. Mm. Every once in a while. Yeah. And so did she, so your mom and your dad were never married. Did they have much of a relationship at all while you were growing up? Not until I was 16. Okay. Was Um, he, did he have anything to do? Like, did he have anything to do with her? Did he come up during her, the end of her life? Or was she like over it, past it by that time? She died with pictures of him in her wallet. She always loved him. And he also had her picture. And he he had great regret that he made a mistake. There's no mistakes, Dad. You you would have killed each other. I'm so glad you didn't live together. (laughs) (laughs) The best of both worlds. I had her by herself and I had him by himself. It was perfect. Mm. I couldn't have orchestrated it better if I had tried. But um, he was the love of her life. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah, really sweet. And also the biggest pain in her ass. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's how love goes hand in hand. Yeah. Sometimes that's good to get (laughs) Definitely. You're like, oh, I love you so much. I want to kick you in the shin. Yeah. Um, Is there anything else that you want to? say to or of your mother and that experience before we move on to your dad I still it like still blows my mind that this is an experience you've not only been through one time with one parent but twice with both parents yeah yeah Yeah. um I have 
I have to say, I have a great appreciation for her. I look more like her now than I ever have in my entire life because of my hair color, I was always dark and I never saw myself and her. I just looked so much more like my dad. And um, so it's ironic to, to look so much like her. Does it almost uh, feel like, what does that feel like? Like, especially with her being gone, like being able to look into the mirror, it's almost like getting a wink from her in like another timeline or a weird, like that's gotta be very trippy. <laughs> It's interesting. I, 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 part of my remorse, you know, of, mm. of, um, not having that appreciation of how much alike we are. So, um, my daughter just had a son and she has such a great appreciation of me now at 35 that she hasn't had or been able to have because she didn't know yeah. what it took yeah. to be a mother. Yeah. And you can't know until you know. You can't. So yeah. I I don't feel as remorseful or regretful as I do feel more deep knowledge and appreciation. Yeah. Isn't it interesting to be in that sandwich? It's like you have the three different experiences. It's like you and your mother, like one-to-one. And then there's this moment of like, oh gosh, I really wish like, as you hit certain ages and have certain life experiences, you do have this sense of like, oh, I wish I had understood those things better. I would have maybe been more gracious or more kind or whatever. And then you have a child and that child Like it gives you so much more compassion for yourself because you love them so much and you see what they're doing. And you're like, I know that you literally just don't know. And so it kind of gives you permission to go back to your younger self and be like, you didn't know. So we're going to let you off the hook for that one. And we're just going to try to be really present with them and hopefully bring consciousness and presence, you know, foster that while we have that time. And that's also part of being present with yourself during the death process of your loved ones. If you don't have the capacity, have compassion that that's okay. And just be real when you're with them, you know, just go and sit. You don't have an answer. It's okay. They don't need your answers. They got to figure out their own answers. They're the ones doing the work of leaving. They're the ones that have to let go. They just want somebody to sit with them. Yeah. There's really. And I think so many people don't engage because they don't know what to do. And again, it's like when somebody has a miscarriage or loses someone or goes through a really bad breakup, it's like you have the friends that go into like tuna casserole mode where they show up with all the stuff (laughs) and you're like, a tuna casserole is not going to fix this. Like it cannot. And that's more for you than them. First of all, nobody likes tuna casserole. Secondly, like it just gives you something to keep yourself busy because we don't know how to sit with someone in deep grief and loss. We don't know how to do that. Nothing about our culture has prepared us for that or educated us on that. And it's, I mean, to me, that's one of the greatest shames of, of this, of our culture in general. It's like, i my husband and I have traveled extensively and been around many different cultures and many different people. And there's just certain things. It's like, I mean, so many ties between birth and death, obviously, and similarities. And 
it's just like in other cultures, the, the ritual and the village and the community and everything that goes into birth, they have those also for death. They have, I mean, sitting Shiva for God's sakes, like literally sitting Shiva, sharing a, a meal, sitting together in silence, like they're sitting in grief. That's all they're doing. And there, but we have this sense of, well, if I can't do anything or I don't know what to do, I avoid it and I don't go and I don't go. I think a lot of people have regret about missing it all because they also couldn't imagine being there for it. Yeah. yeah. And their fears get in the way. Yeah. And that's and the people that, well. that grieve the hardest, a, a minister, really good minister friend. I was crying really, really hard when my grandmother, who was a great influence in my younger life, um, had passed away. And she said, so why are you crying so hard? And I said, well, I wasn't there. I couldn't be there. And she said, the, the people that cry the hardest have the most regrets. Mm -hmm. And and she said, do you have regrets? I said that I couldn't be there. Yeah, yeah. It, and she said, forgive yourself for not being able to be there physically. Mm -hmm. And think about all the things that you were there for and remember all the things that you had shared with her. And, you know, I was really, really close with her. I talked to her all the time. I, you know, and that really soothed my heart because I did show up in life and because I couldn't be there for her final breath didn't mean I wasn't there. It doesn't negate everything from before. Exactly. Yeah. So live the life, you know, yeah. be there when you're called to be there. Yeah. And so that your mom passed away in what year? In 2016, okay. December. All right. So then bridge us over to how you got reconnected with your dad, who you didn't, didn't have a relationship with really until you were 16. And then what was the relationship like? Um, yeah, it was, uh, not great <laughs> face you made. <laughs> well, let me just put, put it to you this way. I went to an all girls Catholic school. So I was a very empowered young woman and be the year, the summer between my junior and senior year, he decided that we were going to connect and I was going to fly. He flew me out to California and then he was a big restaurateur and he had all these connections and we went to Las Vegas and we had the suite and we had the, you know, blah, 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 the fancy dinners and he was table side and shows and everywhere we went. He, isn't this my beautiful daughter? This is my beautiful daughter. Had, you know, have, you haven't met my beautiful daughter. Well, about four days into my beautiful daughter, I was like, all right, mister, you don't get to take credit for me. We're getting to know each other, but no, you, you, you need to knock off the beautiful daughter thing and you can introduce me fine, but stop taking all this credit. You didn't do anything. Well, this is my not so recently estranged daughter, Michelle. <laughs> yeah. So a month of supposed visit turned into a week and I was back home mm -hmm. and I didn't talk to him again until I had a son. We're back to the having children makes uh -huh. you aware and having 
and a, a deeper awareness of what it takes. And I sent him an announcement and I said, here's your chance. You can be a great grandfather and make up for some things. And he was, he was there. He showed up every holiday. He sent a card. He sent a, you know, money or not, whatever. What are those things? Anyway, he was there. He, he showed up. Um, fast forward, you know, I don't know, 30 years. And he, <laughs> this is a funny story. He's a, he was a character, son of Hercules, Angelo. <laughs> was married you know for the fourth or fifth time i don't know oh man yeah mr Jiggle, italian stallion over there Ooh, very hand dangerously handsome booming voice he he was a dancer of the oh, oh my god he he yeah he could charm the pants off of anyone at any age every woman had had uh had to be careful with angelo <laughs> So, <clears throat> and my girlfriends to this day can tell you, woo, what a charmer. So at 75, the, my, my father's sister, his closest living relative, her husband died and they had a home in Ocala, Florida, which is the center of the state. And dad lived down in Naples, about a four and a half hour drive. They also segue, they had a house in Italy that he was born in and they kept this home in the family, he and his sister, and they would go every summer and they kept it up. And, and, uh, so he was married. So when Aunt Olga, Carmela, but everybody called her Aunt Olga, her husband died and dad within the month. I would say within the week, but I don't want to exaggerate because he's dramatic all by himself. He divorced, <laughs> he divorced his wife, left with nothing but his Cadillac and a little bit of cash. He was like, you can have the business. They had an insurance company. He was like, you can have the condo. I'll take half of the, whatever we have in the bank account. I'll take half of that. You can have the rest. And he moved in to a trailer in the middle of Ocala National Forest to be with his sister. Mm. And he took her to Italy every summer. And in the winter, he at 75, got on a cruise ship and taught dance on a Mediterranean cruise ship at 75. Of course he did, Angela. Of course he did. <laughs> yeah. So, and when he wasn't doing that, he would drive up to New York. He drove cross country. He hired somebody to come and stay with my aunt to make sure she was taken care of. He called her every day and he drove cross country. So he'd go up to New York and see family. He'd drive through Missouri and see us, go to Las Vegas, see the, I had two brothers there and then a brother in California and then drive the Southern route and stop in Texas to see my mother on his way back to Ocala. Oh my goodness. He did that until he was 91. Hmm. So he eventually every, figured out the whole being there for people thing. Yeah. Yeah. Every year. 
and he would say his, I would say oh dad I'm sorry you know we don't have much time he said as your grandmother always said cinque minuti if I only have five minutes it's enough cinque minuti so I left my marriage in 2014 and moved to the house here in Florida that I've had for a long time. And then in 16, I moved in with my mom, rented out my house here. And, and then when she died, I sold my company in 17 and was here full time. Well, dad was two hours away. So there starts my relationship building. We were together every holiday. Um, and I even went to Italy with him for a month to do business and take care of learning about how to take care of business in Italy. And I converted my garage into a studio that he loved it. I mean, I'm on the water, it's beautiful, it's one story. And I said, you know, this would be for you, dad, when and if the time comes that you can't live alone, you have a place. And he just loved, loved, loved that. And then as the time came closer, he's like, oh, I can't leave here. I can't leave Ocala. Like you're in the middle of the forest, in the middle of nowhere, in a trailer. trailer. <laughs> so he just stayed in the trailer. He never, like, he never came he here. stay there. He never got anything else. So I, me and my little dog, who's over there on the couch, my little healing dog, um, moved up to Ocala and moved in with dad, just like I had with mom, because I knew it was time because he never was um, anxious. He was never not anxious. He'd be anxious if he was going to be late to an appointment. He never was. He was always early, but he started saying things like, well, how long before you come? Well, when will you get here? How? I thought you were coming this week. Well, are you going to be able to stay? And I, I heard that. There's like you panic, know, and like listening, panic. You're yeah, you listen. And the more you listen, the more you're rewarded that, that sound that that anxiety was coming through his questions. And, um, and I knew, so I just made arrangements to have the house occupied and indefinitely and, and moved up there. So, so how long were you there with your dad? Four months, four months. Wow. And what was that process? Like, I mean, so having done this before now, but obviously, you know, different situation, different person, everything, like what so, about the situation did you feel prepared for any part of it since you had had this unique experience before or was everything different? The thing that I was prepared for was giving up my life because I had to move again. Um, I knew the calling. I knew what was going to be expected. But this time I was moving into a national forest with zero friends and no support, much harder. It was an hour to a grocery store, mm. much harder. Also, I had a big fenced in yard. 
much more to take care of. And I had my dog all easier. So there's pluses and minuses with all those things. My dad was not in pain. He was not what you would consider sick. Yeah. So the things that were frustrating and confusing were really confusing. Like, well, you're not in pain. Well, no, I'm not in pain. I'm old. old. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I bought a juicer because he had great arthritic pain. He, for a year, I don't know, 30 years, as long as I knew him, he could hardly turn his neck, which made me really nervous for him driving. Like, I'm like, how can you see the people next to you? So I started doing uh, celery juice every morning because I knew that was good for arthritis. And I put him on a uh, blood type, O blood type diet because he was very um, connected to Italian food, which was really bad for arthritis. So I let him have a little bit of pasta and a little bit of bread, but mostly the, um, the blood type diet. And I would juice every morning for him. And then I made green, green smoothies. And, um, he was really good about that. And, but he was having a hard time get with his anxiety like they have this thing called sundowners, which my mom never had, but he had really a lot of anxiety once it started to get dark. And what is, oh, I was gonna say, what is that? It is the sun sets. There's a a well-known in the hospice community. It's called sundowners. And, um, and it's a fear of the night of the dark. They think they're going to die in their sleep. Is that the fear that they're going to die in their sleep and not wake up? It's, it's not a logical fear that you can pinpoint. Yeah. It is a, it is a depressant. It mm-hmm. is a anxiety producing time. I think it's also help happens with the elderly. I don't have, I don't have that much experience as, as much experience as I have with death. Yeah. There are other experiences I yeah. could share with you of other people I've been called to their bedside, but I have very little experience caring for the elderly, oddly enough. So yeah. But I do think that this is a thing. Sundowners is like a depressant time. Yeah. And he had a really hard time with it. So I talked, I had hospice come out again to keep, maintain his integrity and his humanity and, and his masculinity. Um, they bathed him and they changed his sheets, helped me. I did the laundry, I did the cooking, I did all of that, but they would come out and check you know, check his health and um, blood pressure and things like that and check on me to make sure I was caring for him properly and had all the support. And we couldn't figure out the sundowners thing. So they tried medicine. Mm-hmm. Well, that horrific. I mean, I woke up one night and he had physically moved his bed, like broke the bed and was in the living room on the floor. I was like, holy shit, what? So no more medicine. We're like, okay. Did not not respond well, yeah. We're we're going in, we're going. (laughs) I had to take pictures to remind myself later why, because it was so bad. So, um, So anyway, so so a week or two later, 
they were asking, okay, so, so what's his pain level? I said, I'll, I'll get back to you. So I'm sitting with dad. Okay, here's the checklist. How are you feeling? Bowel movements, this, that. How's your pain? He turned his head one way. He turned his head completely the other way. He looked at me, he said, I have no effing pain. And he didn't say effing. And I said, well, we should have done this sooner. He said, what'd you do to me? <laughs> I was juicing. <laughs> But um, at, at the last week of his life, he was in no pain and he was doing really well. I did have to get a bed, um, hospital bed with sides because he would get up in the night and wander around and want to get in the car. And I had to hide the car keys because he was a driver. Remember the driving cross country? And, um, and I had a bed monitor, which an alarm would go off if he would get out of bed. So I didn't get a lot of sleep. And after a couple of weeks of that, I was starting to hallucinate. I was so tired. And I walked outside and I was praying for an answer. And I was crying hard. And I was like, okay, I don't know how much more of this I can take. You know, in some ways, mom was easier, even though she was in pain and I am losing my mind. And I need an answer. I, I wasn't getting much sleep. I, I was pretty spent. And I, I went outside and I was realizing that I needed to ask for different kind of help. I was like, okay, God, you need to show up. I need help. I need mm -hmm. some help. And just then a woman walked out of the house across the street and I said, hey, Ruthie, come here. I need to ask you something. Now I had heard that she was a helper, that she would help people. And I said, how would it be if you, could you come and help me so I could go to the grocery store? She said, oh, honey, anytime. If you need to go to the store or you need to go away, go home for a night, you let me know and I'll be here. She said, mm -hmm. I said, do you want to check? She said, let me check with my husband, make sure I can do the overnight, but I don't think it's a problem. She literally lived across the street. I said, well, let's try the grocery store run and see how that goes. So the next day I went to the grocery store, I came back. They had a big time looking at, at, at pictures and listening to music. And I said, okay, I'm going home for a night, just one night and I'll be back. She said, absolutely, we'll be fine. Of course, I called like 10 times. I came back the next day, she was just, so over the moon in love with my dad. Of she's course. like, he, he's the dad I never had. They danced. They had a great time. She danced with him in the wheelchair. They told stories. They had a wonderful time. And, and that was a lifesaver for me. He was gone within the week. But when I needed the help, it was provided. Yeah. And, and, and really through, only through grace, because I would have never thought of that on my own. But isn't that, isn't that interesting? The fact that it, like when you need something, it's always there. It doesn't mean that you don't have to ask for it though. It's like, you saw her, like she was presented to you, but you still had to go and ask her, you know, it was like very timely, but it's, but so often I think it just, we just don't ask, like we don't I'd ask seen her a hundred times. It's not yeah. like I've seen yeah. her before, but, 
between standing there with my eyes closed and praying for help and then opening my eyes and her being there I was like there's oh, the answer like duh yeah it's like the, the guy who's praying for God to save him and he sends three sailboats and they drowns he's like dude I sent you three freaking sailboats like what else do you want me to do <laughs> yeah so again listening you know be observant of what you're being given yeah. you know because well, we do yeah. have and that brings me to another question. I know I feel like we can talk about this much longer, but I also want to respect your time. <laughs> I, I feel like what you said in the very beginning of our conversation about how, like, this is definitely a calling, like being able, just as I imagine, um, being a first responder, being a, you know, being a firefighter, being a, being any of these things, being a doula, being all, all of these roles. It's like, there are certain people who were born with the, like, the, the spirit or the essence who are able to be there in those situations, like they've been equipped to do those things. And so I'm curious for the benefit of everybody listening to is like, what are, in your opinion, having been someone who feels called to this, like, what are some, some qualities that you feel like someone ought to possess or be prepared for, to be in this role or to, to do this for someone? or things to be aware of even? Um, it, I think that understanding that you aren't alone, having a, um, an appreciation of, of a support team, whether it's seen or unseen, if you can surrender your ego, um, you'll be better served. I don't think that everyone that's called to do this is a professional, you know, they don't have the, the energy healing background or the massage or the medical background or the, you know, they, they don't all have those toolkit, you know, tools in their, in their toolbox, but they are called and the, the gifts that are given to you by showing up are far greater than what's asked of you. Mm. The, the discomfort, the lack of sleep, the not knowing, the working with hospice and, um, and please work with hospice because that's an incredible, oh my God. They are, they are. Say enough. In, in every situation I've ever been in with hospice, it's mm -hmm. been incredible. Um, but they don't have the answers either. They have some, they have some yeah. tools and some things, but it really is about listening and surrendering your will to thy will. Yeah. And, and the greater you can surrender, the greater gifts are given. Hmm. I gave me chill bumps. So <laughs> that's, I've said it before. That's my, uh, my indicator when like truth is being spoken, I get like chill bumps all up and down my arms and legs. It's like a resonant. Mm -hmm. So powerful. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I want to, I'm like, I, this is going to, I'm going to have to have another conversation with you because I want to, there's so many other places I want to go, but I also know that we're getting close to time. So the last like question that I want to ask you, because I'm so curious what your take 
is on this, given your unique experiences are, how do you think we would live, live differently if we changed our view of death, and like the dying process? Well, I don't know how to encourage people to live differently. I don't know if it is a matter of viewing the death process. I don't think that that's enough. Um, I don't think that that if people viewed the death process as not scary, that they would live greater. I, I think some people are afraid of living a greater life because they're afraid of life, mm. afraid of all that they're capable of and all that is possible because they're um they're wanting to be right and want to look good and want to stay safe and and they want it to be the way they want it because they think that that keeps them safe and happy and and it really is restrictive and and it it's how we die in living and so the 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 opportunity is really to live fully in the present moment yeah and and living with the dying in the present moment is is really deep and emotional and and gut-wrenching and joyful and beautiful, just like living with the birth process, if you've mm. ever been at a birth. I mean, it's gut-wrenching and painful and harsh and ugly and beautiful and joyful. And it's all, uh, all things. So when you boil it all down, if, if you're limiting your experience in any way, you're limiting your life and yeah, limiting yeah. the death process is limiting your life. Yeah. Well, it, it, the way that you've just put it right now, it's like, I think so some people haven't fully lived a day in their life until they're dying. And there's this, like what you just said is like resonate. It's like whipping around in a circle in my head. Like I'm going to be thinking about this for a really long time where it's like, it's not even about it. Like it's like when you get to the end of life and it's like all of those regrets and all of that remorse and everything comes from the failure to, to live before they ever got here. So it's not the fear of death. It's that they have feared living the whole time, whole time. and now there's regret. And so it's not that, yeah. Ugh. Gives me all kinds of feels. <laughs> Makes me feel all kinds of things. Segway back just a little teeny tiny bit. We're gonna rewind to yeah. a good day with my dad. Yeah. And I said, Dad, what do you want to do today? And he said, You know, I've really been wanting to go through those pictures that are under my bed. There's so many pictures, and I just haven't seen them in years and years and years. And I really want to go through them. And I said, Well, let's do it. Let's go get them. And he said, Oh, it's too painful said painful why he said because you're not in any of them mm. and I said well dad that is sad but if you don't share them with me now that means I'll never share that with you and that would be sadder mm. 
to your point, mm -hmm. live fully, have no regrets now, and you won't have them later. Is there anything else you would like to say to or of your dad before we close? I will be forever grateful for our time. Well, I am forever grateful for your time and for just your open candor and the, the laughter and just the, the beauty of your experiences. They're, they're the kind of thing that I, I know a lot of people would keep very close and I appreciate you for lending them to us for letting them out. And they've definitely, um, like I have felt them the entire time and I know that they can be felt through the airwaves. So deep, deep, deep gratitude to you, Michelle. Thank you so much. Angelo, Evie, and I all thank you for the ability and time to share their stories and mine. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you. Hands on my heart. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for listening with an open and curious mind. Anne Voskamp says, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. I would be so grateful for your help to expand the safety we're creating here by subscribing, rating, and sharing this show with the folks you love. Let's keep nothing important confidential.